Assalamu alaikum and welcome to episode 5 of the Al Maghrib Crew You podcast. For those who don't know me, I am your brother and host for today, Zaki Ahmed, the Qabila Development Manager for Canada with Al Maghrib Institute. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's joining us on our call today live, as well as everybody who is going to be joining us later on through our podcast. Jazakallah khair for joining us. We are blessed to have your company and we're very, very appreciative that you came to join us on this journey. So for those who are tuning in for the first time, if you're not familiar with what Al Maghrib Crew U is, it's a monthly program that we have for our entire volunteer body with Al Maghrib Institute throughout the entire world. We have over 40 cities around the world where we have local volunteer teams that are carrying this work, carrying this dawah, and they're really the reasons why we've been able to flourish over the past decade and a half. So this is a venue where we can come together to develop, to grow as people and to grow closer together and exchange the different ideas that we have around the world because we have so much talent and so many different things to share with one another. So every month what we do is we bring on an exciting speaker talking about something that's relevant to us, whether it's personally or it's around our spiritual development or our professional development, they're going to speak on something that we can take away practical benefit from and implement into our lives. Our guest for today, I'm really excited to introduce him. It's been a long time coming. We, we mentioned on previous episodes and asked people to guess who we're going to have on the next episode. And he's a name who kept coming up over and over again because people wanted to hear from him. But it's our very own Bilal Khan. And Bilal Khan, for those of you who've been with Al-Maghrib for a while, you might know him because he's been a stellar part of the Al-Maghrib family since the get-go, way back in the day. He started out as a volunteer been active with Durba and Nurain, and he's been for a long time now an HQ member. And he's actually the person behind the scenes who is making sure you have all of those amazing trailers for the different courses that you see and all of these exciting different creative marketing contents that you see for all of the different classes that Al Maghrib Institute offers. So it's him behind it. He's in charge of our marketing and innovation. And inshallah, he's going to be sharing with us today a topic that's really powerful and is going to really boost our ability to lead, to persuade others and to win people over to our way of thinking. I'm going to pass it on to Bilal Khan and let him jump right into it. Jazakallah khair for joining us, bro. I'm really, really excited to have you as a guest and I can't wait to hear what you're going to share with us today. Jazakallah khair. It's an honor to be here. I've actually, uh, the day you announced this podcast, I'm like, how can I contribute? Finally get the opportunity. And thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to get right into it. Um, uh, for those of you who have been uh, paying attention um, to Zaki and the messages that have been going out, the focus of today's uh, presentation is about sharing the art of, uh, the art of attention. Essentially, how do you um, shape people's perception? And I'm going to be sharing with you uh, specific things and strategies that have been used by product that have been used by propagandists for the last hundred years. And this, and I want to get right into it. I don't know how many. And now, keep in mind, um, my presentation itself is going to be relatively short. I want to be able to engage with you guys as much as possible. I want you guys to ask as many questions as possible. However, during the present, the, during what I have to share with you, if any questions do come up, do write them down, uh, so so as to that uh, you can ask it later. So the first thing I want to bring to attention: uh, some of you may be aware of the old TV show that had run its course called Mad Men, right? Um, starring the character of Don Draper, right now. 
the, 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 the story is fictional. It's following the, um, uh, the escapades of uh, Madison Avenue advertising folk, specifically this one character. However, although it's fictional, the character himself is based off of a real-life individual, or partly a real-life individual whose name is Edward Bernays. Now, Edward Bernays, he is considered to be the father of propaganda and PR in the United States, and the things that he did and the practices that he had established are considered to be foundational today. So uh, if you don't know who Edward Bernays is, he is the nephew of Sigmund Freud, just to kind of put that into context. So now what, now when did he live? He lived around the 1920s all the way up until the 50s. His initial claim to fame, which got him on the map, which people started paying attention to, specifically big companies, was when the publishing association reached out to him and they said, hey, look, we're trying to get people to read more books. What can you do to help us, right? Now, normally, people would be like, oh, you know what, let's come up with the advertising campaign to sell more books, but he was like, no, forget about selling books. He went with the philosophy, and that was where there are bookshelves, there will be books. And so he went out and convinced developers and contractors and architects to add, um, uh, to add uh, what's it called, uh, bookshelves into all of the buildings. So as a result, people would move into a house, a tenant would move into an apartment building, uh, and they would see empty bookshelves, and so they would have to fill them up with books. And the sales of books literally skyrocketed. People didn't actually read the books, but they just, they were not going to invite anybody into their home to empty bookshelves. So that put them on the map. Later on, there's a company known as Lucky Strike Cigarettes. They're like, hey, can you help us sell more cigarettes? And he said, okay. And they looked at the market, looked at them uh, in terms of who's already smoking cigarettes and how much more can they get people to smoke cigarettes? Well, it was dominated by the male market and it was already looked at as a very male and macho thing. And so they said, okay, well, what about the female market? Can we get women to start smoking? And so they said, well, there are some women smoking, but it's not a big market. And the perception of a smoker is that it's masculine. And if a female is smoking, it just seems like she's trying to be masculine or she's very, it's unbecoming of a woman to start smoking. So, you know, they said, okay, let's figure out how we can get the women population demographic to start smoking. And so they did a little bit of research. They looked at, okay, what are the benefits of nicotine? And uh, based on medical research, they found that one of the side effects of nicotine is that it curbs appetite. Well, they figured, why don't we appeal to the vanity of some women and how, you know, every woman wants to be thinner. So they came up with an advertising campaign, which basically said, um, you know, it, the next time you want to reach for sweets, reach for a lucky strike instead. And they had a second hand, like a, a picture of a woman and her shadow shows a double chin. And it basically said, beware of the second chin. Now, my question, you don't have to answer right now, uh, is do you think that advertisement campaign worked? And the reality is yes or no. Initially, uh, did it sell more cigarettes to women? Yeah, sort of. But it wasn't, you know, gang busting. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't to the effect in the way that book sales had gone up when they started putting bookshelves into housing. Now, his whole thing was, what is it that we can do that 
with the understanding that a rising tide lifts all ships, right? Whereas advertising Lucky Strike brand cigarettes to women in general uh, is not going to rise, it's not going to uh, lift all ships. And so they said, okay, well, let, let's figure this out. What is a trend that is on the rise that we can get behind and support? And what's controversial about this trend that if we get behind it and we support it, people will start talking about it. And so they looked at uh, the different things that were happening at the time, and they found that women's rights was something that was on the rise. This is the 1920s, you know, people, women wanted to vote, uh, you know, things like that. And so uh, they said, okay, why don't we do this? Let's organize a march and a protest in, uh, for the benefit of women's rights. And so they did that, and Lucky Strike was footing the bill. And just like any demonstration and protest, at the end of a march, there's a, there's a rally. At the rally, there's speeches. And they said that at the end of the speech, they're going to have everybody, they're going to tell them to raise your torches of freedom. What are the torches of freedom? They essentially gave everybody attending the march a Lucky Strike cigarette. And they told them to light the cigarette and put it up there like a torch of freedom. Now... Here's the thing, they're doing this action, but the question is, like they're planning all this, how do we get people to pay attention? So Edward Bernays, he reached out to the media and he went with the perspective of, hey, um, you know there's uh, this women's rights march is happening and they're gonna be protesting for women's rights, but better yet, they're gonna be smoking in public. Like women smoking in public, you crazy. The media came in, photographed, wrote, documented, had a field day. What was the resulting impact? The resulting impact was the fact that people in general were becoming more and more in favor of women's right to vote and other, other aspects of women's rights. But because the cigarette was the sponsor and was the supporter of this movement, then what happened was a, a woman who smoked cigarettes became a symbol of women's independence, of women's rights. And so that led to a rising tide that lifted all ships. Every single, every other cigarette company got in on selling cigarettes and advertising cigarettes to women specifically as a symbol of women's rights, coupled with the fact that, hey, well, by the way, let's also appeal to your vanity. Not only will you be a strong, independent woman, but you'll also be skinny. And so they combined all of that together to come out with this uh, campaign. Now, there's a, there's a formula that comes out of this. And this is a formula that a lot of people use, but if you abuse it, you can get easily called out on it because of one particular thing. The formula is this, and something you might want to write down. Find what is trending, okay? And then figure out what is potentially polarizing and controversial about that trend. And then ask yourself, how can I, or whomever you are representing, take a... Uh, take a uh, authentic position on that. And then at the same time with that authentic position, how do you sprinkle a little bit of irony? Now I'm going to, uh, in a couple of, uh, I, you know, a couple of things that I'm going to mention a couple of uh, headlines potentially, and you might ring a bell, but I'm not going to go into details, right? One headline uh, in the last year or so was hijabi on playboy. Another headline was conservative imam believing in evolution, right? So these are things that essentially was about 
getting in front of a trend, finding a issue about it that was controversial, taking an authentic position that was true to the true to whoever is uh, expressing an opinion about it, adding value to the conversation, uh, but at the same time allowing for some irony to be sprinkled in. Now, what I'm sharing with you here is this is basically the overarching strategy of propagandists that we need to understand. Now, this is just one element. Um, I want to, uh, before I get into another story, I just want to show, showcase to you about the major problem, and this is something that I've been seeing with a lot of Fabail and just amongst Muslims in general. When people do try to do marketing and they try to do communications and multimedia, they're doing it like as if it's 2005 or 2007. They're not communicating the way that we're supposed to be communicating today. Then, and when you don't do communication right, when you don't engage the appropriate way, you, you don't use the right platforms in the right way, then your message is going to get mixed and your attention, you're not going to get the attention. And at the same time, you're going to continue to struggle and just spin your wheel. And so one of the things that I want to ask all of you and just take a moment and uh, actually, this is a discussion I actually had. Uh, I'm in Dallas right now. So on my drive up to Dallas, I had a prospective client call. And one of the things that the client was explaining their, uh, their challenges in terms of what they're trying to do, develop their brand, sell their product and whatnot. And uh, I asked them what their number one uh, problem was. The number two problem, they were talking about how uh, they said that they're not good at marketing. I said, okay, fair enough. Then I asked them point blank to you, what is marketing? And his response was, oh, marketing is about, you know, being showy and selling and being out there. And I said, that's not marketing. Marketing is about having attention. There's different ways to get attention, but it's about having attention. And then once you have the attention, can you give them the appropriate presentation the appropriate video, audio, text, whatever, and move them to a clear action. That's what marketing is all about. And, and let me just break that down. Attention is of three types, okay? Now, each one of these types of attention is its own specific field of marketing that requires their own unique expertise. Now, the first field of attention is the attention that you already own. If you look at your own religious prophetic tradition, when Rasulullah was given the order to tell the people about La ilaha illallah, one of the first thing that he did was he went to all the people that he had the attention of in regards to his friends, his family, you know, his, uh, his extended family. Like these are the people that he went out and talked to personally. Only until after the order was given to give, make the call public, not just private, but public, that's when he did the equivalent of pulling a fire alarm where he said, Wathubaha, right? And he gathered all the people and he asked them, and in the context for those who don't know, what the context of calling Wathubaha in Mecca was to alert the entire city to let them know Oh my God, there's an army coming, invading, i.e. as if Abraha with his elephants is coming to destroy the Kaaba. Like everybody gather around and let's figure out what we're going to do. 
That's the context that was the purpose of that particular call. Like I said, the equivalent of pulling a fire alarm. You pull the fire alarm in the building, everybody exits and stops what they're doing, exits the building and meets at, it meets at a rendezvous point. And so that's what they did. And he asked them, if I told you there's an army coming, would you believe me? And they all said, yes, you are a Sadiq and Al-Amin. You are trustworthy and you don't tell, you haven't spoken a lie. And so he establishes credibility in regards to who he is and the attention that he owns. And he proceeded to tell them about the message. Now, granted, his uncle, Abu Lahab, is, uh, he, went, uh, he basically told them, uh, I hope you perish and uh, be as if you never existed. You brought us out for this. And Rasulullah was defended by Allah SWT with the revelation of Surah Al-Lahab. But that's besides the point. What I'm saying here is the first type of attention that you have, that you can engage with, is the attention that you already own. You're alive. You've been living for the last 20, 30, 40, maybe years, okay? In that time, you've engaged with people, and thus you have their attention. One thing I want you guys to understand, marketing, advertising, PR, branding, all of that is synonymous for one word. Your reputation do people trust you when you tell them something and you want them to do something? Okay, will they take action? Do you have that influence? Do you have that trust? That's what it really comes down to. Attention number two, okay? Attention number two is what is, is the type of attention that you can buy. Traditionally, it's been known as advertising. You can buy space on a billboard. You can buy a magazine ad. You can buy pay-per-click advertising, Facebook ads, uh, uh, you can uh, sponsor people, right? Nike has done this by sponsoring athletes. Okay, today in social media, you have influencer marketing, as they call it. You can basically talk, to, you get people who have a lot of following, and you can pay them, and they will showcase whatever you have. The challenge with advertising by itself, in its very nature, is that it is not sustainable to build a reputation, but it is effective in maintaining one. Okay, you cannot get to where you need to go by advertising alone. And this is where the third type of attention comes into play. And this is where most of Al-Maghrib's qaba'il are the weakest, which is the attention that you earn. What I mean by earning attention, and traditionally this has been known as PR, which is called public relations. In other fields, it's known as business development. Ultimately, the idea here is to engage with people who themselves have attention that they own. Prime example of this, actually, I'm going to give you two great examples. Um, example number one, you may or may not be aware of the name Michael E. Uslan, okay? Michael Uslan, or Mike Uslan, he is the executive producer of everything that is Batman. From the 1986 or 1984, whatever the year was, the Tim Burton Batman movie, all the way up until today. But before he was the producer of everything that's Batman, he was also one of the first people to actually teach comic books in college as a college student. Now, the thing is, he petitioned and, and his university actually uh, allowed for students to petition to teach a class for credit. And so he petitioned, hey, I want to teach comic book mythology. And the dean said, hey, you know what? I don't think uh, this is going to be a good idea. I don't believe comic books will have any kind of academic standing. And uh, he said, uh, okay, I, fair enough. Let me ask you two questions. First question is, can you tell me the story of Moses? And so the guy's like, okay, I'll play a game. Uh, sure, story of Moses. 
You have uh, basically the uh, children of Israel. Uh, they're being persecuted by the Pharaoh. So he's put on a basket to sail up river and uh, he is rescued and he grows up uh, as, a, as a people there. And then later he finds out that he's a prophet. And so then he becomes a savior of his people. And he goes, okay, great. Can you tell me the story of Superman? And he said, okay, Superman, he's from planet Krypton. The planet's about to blow up. The parents have put him on a ship, ends up on Earth. He grows up with uh, the local people there. And, and when he uh, uh, finds himself, he realizes that he can be the savior of his people. And so that's when the dean said, okay, you know what? I approved this class. And so from there, he ended up teaching the class. But now the question was, okay, I'm teaching this class. How do I get people to pay attention? At that point, he literally called every other newspaper outlet. At the time, that tactic worked, where he would basically be like, and he got on, got on the whole trending factor. He called one conservative paper. He's like, can you believe that they're allowing the teaching of comic books as a college class? This has got to be a communist plot, okay? I need you guys to do something about it. And then he hangs up. And then he calls up the other side, leftist side. He's like, hey, can you believe that they're, uh, that, that they're teaching a comic book class? There's got to be a hippie plot. And he hangs up. And essentially, he does this with as many media outlets, newspapers, magazines, and so on, to the point where pretty much almost every other class that he taught had as many news people attending as students. And this really got his attention on the map to the degree where he actually ended up working for DC Comics later on because of that reputation, because of what he had established. At the end of the day, what he did is he reached out to people who have a platform. The second prime example, everybody's familiar with it, just probably hasn't paid attention. When a movie comes out and they're released, they literally send all of their stars, as many of them as they can, on a promotional tour where they hit up all the morning shows, daytime shows, late night shows, podcasts, interviews, and whatnot to create uh, content or at least leverage the attention of those platforms so that people become aware and it becomes part of their current consciousness so that people are aware of what's coming out in regards to the movie. So this ultimately, when it comes to earning people's attention as a means of building your own attention, building the attention that you own, your own communication asset is something that has to be perpetually in, in play, right? I used to, uh, when I used to, uh, before I came back working with Al Maghrib, I used to work with a, uh, a natural self-storage uh, franchise company. And one of my jobs was to engage with uh, the marketing and the development and training for any new franchisees. One of the patterns that I found that developed was that franchisees really needed to do three things, two things for the long term to make the third thing cheaper. When you Earn, when you engage in business development and earning people's attention and PR, getting reviews and all that, over the long term, your advertising costs go down. And as a result, your business grows even faster. And those franchisees that didn't have the confidence or, this, or, or, uh, or the lack of uh, insecurity, so to speak, to go ask people and talk to people and do this kind of engagement and outreach, end up spending three times more money on advertising than those who did. And ultimately, many of, those many of those franchisees either had to exit or be bought out. And so the important thing here is, as Al-Maghrib Qaba'il, well, whether you're marketing a class, whether you're marketing yourself, at the end of the day, it's about developing uh, a reputation. It's about building a brand, okay? 
And uh, regardless of what the terminology is, it's just that, it's reputation. It's attention that you can speak to, that you can engage with, with any kind of creative, whether it's the videos that HQ produces or something of your own, your own personal engagement, your own personal presentation that gets them to a particular action, which in this context, in terms of what we do here, is to get butts into seats for an Al-Maghrib seminar. So that's what it comes down to. So now, the question that comes into play is great. We've got a lot of this you know, strategy stuff, this mind stuff, mindset stuff, this is what we should be doing, but what can we do specifically? Ultimately, regardless of what type of attention that you're going for, you need to ride that attention space, that terrain with a particular vehicle. Now, the way I like to communicate it is that vehicle is an ATV, not that four-wheeled, you know, dune buggy type of thing, but it's audio, text, and video. That's what it is. And on any platform, whether it's attention that you own, attention that you're trying to buy, or attention that you're trying to earn, you're trying to communicate and engage with the attention there with audio, text, or video. Regardless of which one of these uh, media or, or modes of communication that it is, you need to be able to start committing to one, two, or if you can, all three. And one of the ways that we do it here at Al Maghrib from the HQ side is we'll produce some long form content. We'll get from that, break it up into snippets for other platforms, pull out text from that and use that as best as we can. But that's stuff that we do on an HQ side for the attention that we own. However, as Qabail, one of the things that you guys need to do is for work on uh, in engaging and, and earning new attention. And this is one of the reasons, this is one of the things that has been in the tradition of Al-Maghrib in the past is that we have not grown and gone into another city except that the people that were inviting us and that wanted to become a Qabila were themselves leaders and had engagements and relationships uh, with people who had attention and influence. And so that's what it comes down to. Ultimately, when it comes to creating content, when it comes to selling someone who has attention to be like, hey, yo, let's feature me, ultimately it comes down to communicating the fact that, hey, look, I have value to add to you and your audience. So that's what it comes down to. The action that I want you guys to commit to is to decide on where is it, what type of attention do you feel that you would be personally uh, best suited to engage in, right? And so... Um, in terms of the attention that you that you own, um, if you if you believe that you can do that well, and I think a lot of you do that well, um, attention that we that you can buy, Al Maghrib HQ does that well. But the attention that you can earn, that's where there's a lot of space to grow, and that's where the real money is at. But reg regardless of whatever the attention space is, can the question that comes up is what is the mode of communication? Do you want to commit to audio? Do you want to commit to text? Do you want to commit to video? Can you do all three? That's the question for you. The action is pick one and then move on it by creating content every day for the next 30 days until your next podcast session. And, uh, and the whole idea here is to create this content, not for any platform that you own, not for any platform that you can buy, but other people's platform that you can contribute to and give value toward, all as a means of earning attention.
that's the end of my presentation. Zucky, let's open the floor to questions. And uh, how much time do we have left? We're good, man. Jazakallah khair. Appreciate everything cool, cool. that you shared with us. In the meantime, Bilal, while we're waiting for everyone else's thoughts and stuff, I want to pose a question for you. You mentioned that there's three different types of attention, and you said specifically one where you feel the, qibla, the qibla's are weakened a lot of times, our attention that we earn. Are there any examples, because you've been with Al-Makhrib for a long time, are there any examples from either now or back in the day that you can tell us about where you saw a Qabila doing something really unique or really interesting and was successfully building this attention that they were earning through that? Sure. Look, back in the day, uh, one of the things that Al-Maghrib, and, and, I'll, and I'll share like the different uh, phases of evolution of Al-Maghrib's PR marketing on a local level in terms of how it's changed. Back in the day, it used to be something as simple as, hey, you know what? Let's bring the Al-Maghrib uh, Al instructor to the city, all right? And then in the city, they can go ahead and give random lectures in whatever, however many communities are at, just so the city themselves can get a taste of the instructor. Now, this was the example of here are massages, we're looking for content, we're looking for events, and oh, we're gonna have this instructor who is very eloquent, is good in the English language, doesn't sound with an accent. Mind you, I'm talking 2004, 2005, uh, over 10 years ago. Um, and so, I mean, great, I'm, I'm thankful that that's not necessarily the situation today, or maybe it is, who knows. Uh, but, um, but like it worked sim simply like that. And then from there it grew. There are new technologies that came out. Blogging had an explosion, right? And so then everybody and their mom had a blog. And so part of it was like, hey, are there any community blogs that can develop? So like today when you think about a community blog, you think about like Muslim Matters or you think about Huffington Post. But back then you had a lot of little small blogs in, uh, within their own cities. And many times these blogs were attached to their local papers. And so one of the things that we would do is uh, we would engage with the blogs. Many, many times it was the blogs of MSAs, right? Or it was the email list of a message where, you know, we can engage with, uh, you know, contribute content. Part of it, now this is coming from the perspective of in North Jersey with Qabila Durba, these are some of the things that we would engage in. Then after that, we're like, well, we're already engaging. We already have a lot of leader support. We're already getting a lot of attention and feedback and conversation. Let's now create our own platform. That's when we made our own website to continue to cultivate. Now, the thing is, at the time, we had this baller web team, uh, which I would, uh, with a humble brag, say was uh, thankfully a part of, where... We, our website was so good at the time that every other community in the, uh, the tri-state area was like, hey, can you make us a website too? So uh, plus at the same time, the platform that we created, the blog that we put together, we had a newsletter that we put out and we distributed that newsletter to different massages in print form. Again, that's something that worked back then. Would it work today? I don't know. Um, now, later on, uh, now the thing is, what can people do today? There, again, it's like right now, everybody has some form of communication platform uh, accessible to them now, whether that be Instagram or Facebook or podcasts, you're listening to one right now, or, um, uh, uh, or even just uh, blogs. And even now people have maybe not their own blogs, but they have blogs on other platforms like Medium or uh, even just uh, you know, just other WordPress and people are contributors to other blogs like Muslim Matters and so on. Now, these are big names. There's also local names too. This is one of the things that is actually a discussion that I was having with one of the Al-Maghrib instructors. I was saying how Al-Maghrib, when it first started out, 
they had this universal principle to them, right? Where there was a real human benefit to the classes. The first five or six Atlamoto classes, um, they had this aura of, uh, or at least this thesis to it that was a benefit to everybody in universally. The first class that I attended was History of Khulafat, which was conquest. And, uh, and at the same time, it was a class on leadership with the backdrop of Sahaba. Then it was breach of covenant, Tafsir Surah al-Baqarah. It was about uh, propaganda and hypocrisy with the backdrop of Tafsir Surah al-Baqarah. Later, we had the, uh, um, uh, the Akhlaq class, rules of engagement, again, with Islamic uh, uh, code of ethics as a backdrop. Whereas, but later on, Al-Maghrib kind of went more towards the fiqh and aqidah and became, in my opinion, overly religious stuff. But now we're kind of making our way back to some of the more universal principle stuff. Ultimately, one of the things that, uh, uh, what we can do when trying to earn the attention of, uh, of other people's platforms, even if they're not even Muslim, right? Even if they're not even Muslim, is to come at it from a universal principle. And I think one of the interesting things would be to see what kind of attention we can earn in regards to one of Omar Suleiman's upcoming classes on the Malcolm X after Mecca, his last two years uh, of being a, a Sunni Muslim before his assassination. And this is something that there's a lot of universal principles that are in there because in terms of it's going to be talking about civil rights and engagement and sincerity in the work that you do, which is... Uh, something that would be receptive to both Muslims and non-Muslims. Yes, there's going to be a Muslim backdrop to it, but there's value to it that would be others. Uh, the idea is what's the, what can you identify that's universal? What is the specific context that in of itself would be a value to the platform that you're trying to engage in? I hope that answers the question. Awesome. Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. So I'll pull back those questions that, that came earlier. We got a couple that came in. The first question that we have was from Safa. How do you get Masajid interested? It appears that Masajid now have their own events. They want to pay more attention to and advertise for it and maybe would rather not take the attention away from their own stuff. Right. So, I mean, great question. In terms of how do you get Masajid interested? Uh, my question to you is what is the value that you are bringing to the Masjid? That's the real, I mean, because at the end of the day, nobody wants to give up their assets, Right. People, uh, for the most part, tend to hold their reputation. Like, if you ask people for any one of these three things, it better be a good reason. Their, their wealth, their time, and their reputation. Re the attention that they have is rooted in the reputation. So ultimately, what's the value that you're giving them? What is it, what's in it for them when you get them to participate, right? That's what it comes down to. Uh, a clear example of this is like, um, like one of the things that Islam in Spanish does, who uh, they're basically the masjid that I go to uh, in Houston, um, they're growing. And one of the things that gets a lot of masjids interested about them is the fact that the value that they add, they're like, look, we're not here to take over. We're not here to compete. In fact, we're here to grow the pie. Ultimately, we're trying to make more Muslims. <laughs> so we're educating Latinos about Islam worldwide. So uh, your participation, your cooperation, your flexibility would, at the end of the day, benefit you a lot. And in fact, at the end of the day, once uh, the local folks are identified and trust is built with the local folks, messages tend to be like, hey, do an event here, do an event here. We would love to have more Latinos coming to uh, our events and programs. Do tell us about Spanish, Andalusian, Islamic uh, history. Oh, what are their uh, Islamic roots in the Latino culture? Do tell us about that too. So at the end of the day, like, what is the value that you're adding to the message? That's the real question. If you can answer that, you'll have the answer to how to get the message involved. 
For sure. Awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. So next question we got here from, okay, it's not a question. It's a comment, but maybe you want to weigh in on it too, bro. Um, it's from a tesser in New York. So he said, Qabila Tayyiba in New York had deeper roots, which, you know, deeper roots is history of Islam in the Americas. Um, they had it two weeks ago, and we kind of tried to get onto something a bit polarizing since Black Panther came out on the same night as our opening night. In our last week of marketing, we were pushing people and telling everyone that Deeper Roots is going to be better than Black Panther. Our numbers didn't spike as much, but I'm confident enough to say that we had a pretty good crowd on Friday night, alhamdulillah. You want to weigh in on that, bro, or even give give a kind of spin on how you would approach that situation? I mean, honestly, I mean, if you try to take attention away, again, now you're competing. You're being like antagonistic with something that is significantly stronger. You ask me, hey, you're going to attend Deep Roots or go to Black Panther? Hands down, I'm going to go watch Black Panther. <laughs> so, uh, so the question that comes into play is uh, how do you go about, I mean, honestly, I'd just be like, yo, let, let's, let's actually make Black Panther-themed parties, right? Just like, let's, like... What, like, I would say jump on the bandwagon of the celebratory nature of African culture that Black Panther was encouraging and, uh, and then put together events and parties and invite people to those parties. Oh, this party is sponsored by the Northern Institute featuring deeper roots here in New York City. That's what, that would be my approach. And then what you can do is people who are attending, uh, uh, maybe you can have like a Black Panther viewing night after the class. Like that, that would be my uh, approach. And I think that would have been fun. Cool. All right. So next question here is from Reem. And she said, Jazakallah khair for all the amazing points. My pen barely left the page to pause writing. Just had a question about the point you mentioned about Muslims advertising like 2005. How do we create media that is still current while including the older generation. We typically like to approach parents and older members of the community in our marketing, but there is a certain style of advertising that you'll find as the mosque slash community events. So great question. One of the, at, at the end of the day, good creative. Once you have the attention, the creative is, for it to be good is a matter of context. Now I'll give you an example of this. Um, I used to, I, I served as a youth director in one of the massages in New Jersey while I was in college for about a year. And uh, I came on as youth director at a time when the message was like, look, we budgeted 10 grand for you guys and you guys didn't do jack. So we're taking that money away. And so I said, okay, I wasn't planning on, I didn't know we had money. So whatever. So we put together events and we did advertising in the sense of uh, we had a niche, right? We we're just like, you know what? We're going to create programs for people like us. We don't care about the older folks. We don't care about the uh, children folk. We care about us folk. We're going to create marketing advertising around that. And so the way that we did it was, uh, in fact, we, did, we brought in people names that the community had no idea who they were, who they were but we just put together things like posters at different events. And we had not just posters, but we, people, we had people wearing the posters. So imagine like 100 kids running around with the poster taped on their back. Or uh, during uh, uh, Jumas, a month every Juma leading up to the event, we would sell uh, $2 tickets, right? Printed tickets. And, I, and basically we told the kids, hey, look, you know what? Sell this ticket. You get 50% commission. For every ticket you sell, it's a $2 ticket will let you keep $1 or 50%. Most people, they're like, look, we don't have $2. Here's a $5 bill. So I was just like, all right, you keep $3, we'll keep two. In the end, we sold like 600 tickets or something like that. And we had a good chunk of cash 
set up to basically fund our future programs. Now, the Mezid board came to us and they're like, look, we don't like your advertising because it's exclusionary. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. But then they said, but we want to, in we want to be inclusive of them. And so one of the things that they had suggested, which speaks to the kind of context that they want. Now, what happened was the next event, again, super youth event, very hip hop focused at the time. And so uh, we also created advertising that the older community was receptive to, which is essentially a Word document with the text written out in, in really bad font um, that they can post on the thing. And a lot of the older people came. Granted, when they came, they didn't like the hip hopiness of the presentation and the instructor and, 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 and the youth vibe that came with it. But at the end of the day, it was about communicating uh, with the kind of context that they're receptive to. Now, take this idea and apply it today. The kind of context and the emotions that are attached to Facebook, to Instagram, to Twitter, to YouTube are all distinct and different, right? The situations in which like, people are watching Instagram in the bathroom toilet, whereas most people are watching, uh, uh, you know, maybe YouTube might be on their uh, living room, right? So uh, well, at least I watch YouTube on my living room because it's the smart TV stuff. Uh, so, but you got to understand the context. And, and, and here's the thing, the content and the style of the content and the presentation of the content is reflective of that. So ultimately when you create content, whether it's to earn media or earn attention or to buy attention or to communicate to the attention that you own, the, the, the presentation has to be contextual to the platform. For sure. All right, bro. So I'm going to post something um, from another angle here because Isam just sent something that was interesting. You mentioned just a tip. Grab the people who are big in your community's attention. In Dearborn, we have a city Instagram account and famous friends that can spread the message also personal. So this just reminds me, if anyone's involved in um, business or anything else to do with marketing, you, you might have heard the concept of influencer marketing. And Bilal, you touched on that during your talk, yeah. you want to tell us a bit more about what exactly influencer marketing is and how that plays out. And then if you can um, tell us if you think that applies to our Kabilas and how, and how so, and how can we take advantage of it? If so, I mean, absolutely, man. Um, uh, influencer marketing applies to us. Um, look, uh, there's today we live in an age of micro celebrities, right? We have celebrity sheikhs and we have celebrity du'at and within each city, we have popular people, uh, people who are popular on Instagram and now the question is what is popular in one city versus what's popular in another city? Like maybe uh, in Windsor, Canada, somebody having a thousand followers is a lot, right? Uh, in terms of local followers versus somebody having a thousand followers in New York might be minuscule. Again, that's an assumption. Uh, but let's assume that let's make, let's, let's go with the fact, let's go with the idea that this assumption is true. Then the question is who, how many people locally have a particular follower count that's engaged? Okay, and you can see this just by going through their feed in terms of what they're posting and who's engaging and who's commenting. Do you know these people? How many of their followers? Just a quick look and you'll see that, okay, they're influencer or not. Now, part of getting to engage with them is simply a matter of literally just reaching out, right? Messaging them, direct messaging them, um, commenting on their content um, and, uh, and asking, hey, look, we've got this project going. We'd love your support. Let's collaborate. Right. That's the idea, because at the end of the day, you're collaborating with them is going to add value. And this is the pitch that you give based on the kind of content that they post and the things that they like. So can you do this with city uh, accounts? Absolutely. It's just a matter of understanding what it is that they are talking about 
Like you, uh, and, and from that perspective, you offer a value that they would bite down on. Awesome. Thanks, man. We have a question from Adil Chowdhury in Ottawa. And his question, so Ottawa has their next class coming up, Desert Rose, and his question was related to that. He said, what's the approach we should take to market to new Al-Maghrib students for a class whose content may seem saturated to people in the community or online? For example, in a class, Desert Rose, there's a lot of different programs going on in their community around the Sira. There's local Sira classes. They had series on the Sira. And the difficulty is that when they go advertising to people, it just seems like another one of those. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's a great question. The question, uh, I mean, there's a, two thoughts that come to mind, right? Number one is great. There's a lot of Sira stuff going on. That might be indicative of the fact that people want Sira. Great. And so if people want Sira, then the question that comes into play is what's different about this class? Now, Personally, I've never taken Desert Rose, so I can't answer to you, I can't answer for you what's different. I can go by uh, the marketing and what Chekamal has mentioned to you, and there's a playlist that's on YouTube that showcases the very kind of content that he's going to be presenting. However, what I would suggest is for you to reach out to the city to have already gotten Desert Rose and ask them, hey, what are the things that people, uh, what aspects of the class resonated uh, most um, from uh, uh, from the class itself? right? And then focus in on those things. Now, the other element, the other thought that comes to mind is uh, like, oh, there's already so much stuff going on. My thought is, well, why not, you know, grow the pie? Why not raise a rising tide uh, lifts all ships? So in this case, if you're talking about bringing in more people that typically wouldn't go to a program like this, and I think Al-Maghrib is in designed such that it would be receptive to people who are not your Mezid type of folk. And so this is an opportunity to then engage with folks to be able to open up with that. Part of just off the cuff, certain ideas that come to mind is like, well, is there engagement with the local high school MSAs, the local youth groups? What about interface groups, right? Check him out. He does a lot of DAO. He's engaged with a lot of folks. That's one of the perspectives that he gives with the class. Are there, how many imams locally are actively engaged in interfaith and intrafaith and basically use that connection to open up to a whole new audience that these other CEDAW programs wouldn't engage with and talk to at all? So like these are a couple of opportunities, just a matter of reaching out and engaging and connecting with them. And it's not, and the other thing to keep in mind is that these are not actions that you should be doing a month before the class is about to happen. These are actions that you should be doing throughout the year, regardless of when the class is happening. So now it, uh, it might put a sense of urgency and a little bit of fire under your seat to do more of them as the class is approaching, that's fine, but they should not be exclusive to when the class is approaching. Awesome. All right. So next question is again from Muntasser from New York. And he asked if you can elaborate on ta- on the concept of taking an authentic position and sprinkling some irony on it. And if you can mention some examples of how Al-Maghrib carried that out in advertising our seminars, because it's not like we went as wild as the example of uh, hijabi on Playboy. Sure, sure. Uh, well, let's take an example of one of our own, which is uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, right? And so he is somebody... Now, this is not something that Al-Maghrib engineered, right? These are things that just happen to be. This is the natural... I guess, sociological and psychological effect of these are the elements that when fused together, albeit naturally or 
uh, or uh, uh, or deliberately is what really gets people talking. And so with Shakir Sokhadi, one of the things is that he comes from a background that is very traditional. Medina University graduate, um, very uh, traditional uh, perspectives and views. Um, and so uh, it was funny. When uh, my, I told Shakir when, um, when he first got hired by Al-Maghrib to teach a class, he taught Light of Guidance. That was my first and last class of his that I had taken until no doubt uh, in 2017. And I told him, I'm like, look, man, you joined. I just didn't like Al-Maghrib anymore. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I don't know that guy. <laughs> so, uh, but this just showcases the growth and evolution of an individual, especially him. So to kind of give you an understanding of like, how does the irony get mixed in there? Here's an individual who comes from this very traditional background and then does his PhD in Yale and as a result gets uh, injected into real world questions and scenarios and people that he's having to face. Like he's going from uh, the perspective of these are the different groups of anaqidas in Islam to like, is there a God? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wait, we need to focus on the more important things here. And so uh, coupled with the fact that because he's dealing with issues of doubt, and among the things that come with doubt is a whole science versus religion kind of stuff. And, uh, and he looks into and basically voices an opinion in one of our videos for no doubt in regards to the theory of evolution. And he basically voices in his opinion because this trend of science versus religion, neo-atheism, and, um, and, and this whole uh, religious doubts, these are trends that are currently in play. Whereas he comes in, on a polarizing issue, which is evolution. Evolution is polarizing. Science versus religion is polarizing. And he voices the idea that, look, we cannot ignore the theory of evolution. And we can, nor can we say it's just a theory. Why? Because like, just like gravity, it's a theory. Are you going to ignore gravity? And so, but then he also presents the fact that, look, we cannot deny that there's observable empirical data that showcases on a microcellular level that there is some level of evolution. However, does that translate to, um, you know, complex multi, uh, multicellular organisms? Um, that's the theory. The, the theory says that it does. Does it also relate to human beings? He's like, well, in, in my opinion, based on my religious tradition and, 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 and the beliefs that I hold, the answer is no. But the fact that he went ahead and stated that, you know what, there is credence to the theory of evolution, the fact that it is a theory with empirical data, uh, is basically you have this conservative Molana Sheikh type of guy who's saying the theory of evolution works. That's the irony. And so the thing is, it's ironic, but it's authentic in terms of his position because of the data that he's gotten and what he's looked at and how he's explained it. it he cannot take any other position because that's authentic to him, that's true to him. Um, and so, and for him to say anything otherwise would be inauthentic and people would be able to call that out like that. And so this is where a lot of people make a mistake is that they try to identify what's trending, find what's polarizing about it, and then take a position on it. But they're taking a position just for the sake of taking a position so they can stand out. But then soon after that becomes apparent as to the fact that they're trying to stand out. And so, you know, they get called out for it. For sure. Um, so I'm going to throw a question of my own in here, just for the benefit of everybody. But we've been talking now a lot about using controversy as a tool for marketing and, get, and getting mm -hmm. attention and getting people talking, right? So I'm sure. sure a lot of us, if we're active in our communities, from my own experience, uh, being part of like masjid committees and whatnot, us putting together events, 
sometimes we want to title events, you know, or package the marketing of the event in a way that is going to spark, you know, a bit of controversy without being scandalous in the community, but that way we'll get people coming out to the events. But then because you're dealing with different people, a lot of times bringing in that controversy tugs on their sensitivities. And I find a lot of times, at least with different committees that, that I took part in, when you try to institute that controversy, a lot of times the others are going to be very resistant to that because they're worried about offending anyone. They're worried about the flack we can get for it and all this kind of stuff. Um, what would you weigh in on that? Because I know for a lot of people that might be a big, a big stumbling block that would stop them from being able to actually put this advice into practice. Sure. I mean, there's two thoughts that come with this. Uh, if it's going to offend a few folks, that means you're on the right path. <laughs> like Al-Maghrib has offended many folks it, when it first started, it offended all the folks that were doing halakhah. They're like, what? You're going to charge for money? Like, that's, like it's, you're, you're trading Islam for money? Like, that was, the, uh, that was the attitude. And so, like, at the time, like, like for me, it was like, what, what do you mean? That's a thing? But for people who are, like, been doing halakhahs for years and stuff, like, that was controversial for them. Um, so I would say don't be afraid of ruffling feathers. But on the other hand, uh, this is where the authenticity comes into play, where when you engage and propose something, it's, it's coming off as that it's, that it's coming from a sincere place. It's coming from a position of, hey, I'm not trying to be uh, controversial, right? I'm not doing it for the sake of controversy. I'm not doing it for the sake of uh, engaging in something that's polarizing and juicy, but because this is a real issue and real issues are always polarizing. That's the reality. Um, and so uh, it's just a matter of are we brave enough to engage and discuss some of these things, right? So just the idea that, um, like, for example, like one of the topics with no doubt, right, it's homosexuality and feminism. What if we were to talk about the fact that, hey, you know, there's uh, certain researches that are out there that people say that, oh, they have doubts in a particular thing because, uh, because of bad experiences. Hey, why don't we get together and talk about some of these bad experiences and are they really uh, the cause? Are these bad experiences rooted in Islam or are they rooted in the ignorance of certain people? And it might just be maybe put together an event, maybe put together a party, maybe put together a, a panel discussion, maybe you put together something. At the end of the day, this is where the PR stuff comes into play, where now you're engaging with people who have attention that are willing to discuss it. Maybe the message won't discuss it. And that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, personally speaking, most of these massages are going to go bankrupt the next 20, 25 years anyway. So let's focus on the people who actually do care. Now, if a message does care, great, definitely engage with them. But part of it is understand that there are also activists and du'aant and, uh, and interfaith folks and other organizational folks and civil rights folks who are all engaged in bringing about some level of change or awareness on a certain topic. And if a certain class touches upon that, then it is in your best interest to engage with and put something together with them, whether it be something as simple as a phone call like we're having here right now and inviting everybody on their email list to engage in this phone call to talk about it um, and, uh, and it's brought to you and, and maybe there's no mention of Al-Maghrib and that's fine and part of it is like hey look we'll take care of the logistics we just would love uh, to have a plug or maybe there's no plug maybe right now this first engagement that you're doing is simply to build a relationship and that way you're not just coming off as hey I'm going to do tit for tat 
But you know what? I'm actually really concerned about this issue so we can build a relationship. And this is where the PR aspect comes into play, where sometimes you have to give once, twice, thrice, five times before you can make an ask. That's why I'm saying these type of earn, attention earning activities are things that have to be in place throughout the year, not just a month before a class is coming to play. Maybe a month before the class is coming into play, when you're putting on one of these other events or engagements or what have you, that's when you do ask, hey, look, we've been having these engagements and discussions and whatnot for the last couple of uh, uh, sessions. Hey, how about a plug this time around? Boom, now you're cashing in on that goodwill. The next question we had was from Sister Amina at Medina Tain, Minnesota. And her question was, from the perspective of marketing, in your experience, how effective do you see interpersonal communication versus social media? I mean, the two are one and uh, one and the same. Like, it's just that uh, interpersonal communication is done both in person, in person and remotely. It's done through social media and uh, through, uh, you know, the local media. It's um, part of it is just a matter of how are you engaging? Because on all social media platforms, you have the opportunity and ability to directly message somebody. And so there might be a discussion or a thread that's happening on somebody's feed or something that they posted. Boom, there's an opportunity to engage with a person right then and there, either privately and direct message or publicly right there in the comment section without going into an all out flame war. I, to me, they're, they're one and the same. You can have discussion digitally and remotely or in person. It's just the, it's just the platform is different. That's it. it. The thing that you need to be aware of is the context of the platform and like, for example, <laughs> YouTube comment section, I really wouldn't take that with much seriousness, but Facebook comment section on a post that a friend of a friend made, sure, I'll give it a little bit more seriousness. Isam mentioned, I have one issue. Some people in my community are against Al-Maghrib. So I think we kind of touched on it when we talked about offending people and ruffling feathers and whatnot, but I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that. I mean, nothing really. Look, at the end of the day, sometimes it just might be that, hey, you know what? It's not even about al-Maghrib. It's about they don't trust you. Because uh, if their whole thing was like, look, we don't trust al-Maghrib. Well, look, I'm a student of al-Maghrib. Do you trust me? Right? And part of it is like um, uh, there was a, a, one, of the, one of the imams in Houston. His name is uh, Imam Daniel Hernandez. He works uh, very heavily with the interface crowd. He's a, a Jersey boy, Latino, Muslim, Democrat. And so living in Houston, Texas, and, um, and he engages with a lot of these um, conservative um, folks, whether it be Jewish folks or Christian folks. And, you know, and you'd be surprised how many of them don't know about Islam, how many of them don't know a Muslim. And so when Imam Daniel is engaging with them, one of the things that they ask, you know, sometimes they'll ask questions or the congregation will make judgments uh, right to his face. And he'll be like, and his response is this. He's like, look, r- religion for me is a personal thing. So if you're going to judge me based on my religion, or you're going to judge my religion based on me, then at least get to know me first, which is a fair request. And so, and the same thing could be applied within intra-community relations, whether it be Al-Maghrib engaging with whatever other community organizations that are in there that don't like or don't trust Al-Maghrib or whatever preconceived notions that they have. Like, look, Al-Maghrib has given me so much personal benefit and you might hate Al-Maghrib and perhaps maybe you don't know me either. But before you pass a judgment, why don't you get to know me first? Just a thought and a tactic that you might want to try. 
Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. I'm just going to add one thing, um, but it's kind of just going off of what we already touched upon earlier. At the end of the day, there are going to be people who love you. There's going to be people who just like you. And then there's going to be people who are against you no matter what you do. So, I mean, you can, you can put all the stuff into practice that we talked about. You can build, um, you can build relationships with people. You can build your brand and your community and all that. But at the end of the day, there's going to be people who don't like you and you can't go around trying to please everybody because that's a battle that you're not going to win. So I wouldn't, if you don't have people that don't like you, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> exactly. So, so I wouldn't set that as my goal and I wouldn't worry too much about it at the end of the day. It happens. We've all dealt with it and it's going to continue to happen till the end of time. So, so it's all good. Inshallah. All right. So let's see what else we got here. A couple more people added, um, added some comments. So Taranum mentioned do so she's talking about organizing your own local seminars so basically she said do you think doing our own local seminars as qabilas will help us when al-maghrib seminars come around and it's easier to pull students have you ever um, I, I know some qabilas have tried doing this themselves have you ever had any experience with this um what were the pros what were the cons and how have you seen it successfully pulled off if so well, personally, I haven't engaged with too many Qabail who have been doing their own seminars. I know Qabila Tatrihla has been doing that, um, uh, and uh, even Atlanta um, has, has done that as well. Uh, and I know this personally because, the, because of the Falcon of Spain, the program that I teach, um, just kind of like on my own, uh, you know, I had the honor of, uh, you know, being invited and presenting that. Now, is this something that's, that works, that's uh, effective? I think so. Uh, it's just a matter of um, uh, do you have the capacity to do it? And when you're doing these seminars, are you engaging? Like, honestly, I think one of the things that Fabio should be doing when they're not hosting the remote seminar is uh, collaborating with other organizations and host seminars for them, right? Because one of the things that, uh, uh, that the strength of Al-Maghrib is is their student body volunteers. And so... If and there are other institutions and organizations that uh, can benefit from that, then that would be great. Now, if they have attention, you think that that attention could then be leveraged also to bring more people to al-Maghrib seminars, then you should do it. And I don't think you should limit it to just seminars. You can do all kinds of things. Like what's his name? Qabil um, al Like one of the things that I've seen uh, that I admire is the fact that these guys have all kinds of parties and stuff and events and outings that they have either to develop volunteer, uh, you know, camaraderie. Um, but I would also assume that there's uh, some of those programs are open to other community members and whatnot to also potentially benefit from. So it, does, it doesn't have to be seminars. It doesn't always have to be education. It doesn't have to always be uh, like, the, the, like throwing some fun. Like I'd be all down for like, uh, you know, bowling nights and what have you just, uh, you know, with other organizations and communities like women's like girls bowling nights or girls swim nights or what have you. Whatever is engaging to folks that would allow them to engage with, connect with, and get to know the people who are, in, who are behind the power of Al-Maghrib in that particular city, that's always a plus. Wonderful. Okay. We're going to wrap it up here in terms of the questions, but I'm just going to throw, throw another question so that we can take away as much as possible from this episode today. But we talked a lot about cultivating attention and using that to leveraging that to our advantage. So now moving forward, what are some resources that you can point us to so we can, because right now we got a primer on the topic, but in order for us to get more resources and to start putting it into action, that's one thing. Also, are there any action items that you can suggest to us to take the things that we, we talked about from this call and start putting it into action? 
Absolutely, Ben. Look, uh, I'm not I'm not a big fan of something when it comes to marketing and stuff. A lot of it is in the action, not so much in hey, what resources are there. So what I would suggest, and this is one of the strengths of Al Maghrib, one of the things that we pride ourselves on here from HQ, even and even on a uh, I don't know all Qabail, but uh, in the Qabail that I have had the pleasure of uh, participating with, um, is that initiative. A players, people who do without asking, are always welcome. So having said that, what I would recommend is for you, go ahead and take the initiative and you, who you are, you are not Al-Maghrib, right? You happen to engage with Al-Maghrib at times. Your circle of friends and your sphere, sphere of connections and people is so much bigger, so much more diverse. At least I would hope it is. And if it isn't, make it diverse. And so, and for those, uh, and, but if that's not the case, if, if you, if, if it in reality is diverse, then uh, I would say go ahead and start broadening, start getting, engaging, start connecting, start contributing. Something as simple as start creating and contributing content. Right now, starting tonight, right? For the next 30 days, every day, create something that you are willing to share on somebody else's platform. I would say go ahead and reach out and be like, hey, look, I got a video idea or I got a blog idea or I've got a post idea, I've got a photo idea, I've got, uh, hey, uh, you're on a podcast, hey, I want to contribute something to your podcast because this is who I am, this is my background, this is my expertise, I think it would be a lot of value. I would say every day for the next 30 days, start reaching out to at least three to five people and, uh, and, 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 and do that relentlessly because at the end of the day, uh, the game, the, the, those who win the game are those who are in a relentless pursuit of uh, you know giving value, and uh, and and that is what's going to bring attention. That's what's going to build out your reputation. That's what's going to be. Uh, that's what you'll be able to cash in on in terms of goodwill when it comes time to make an ask. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for the action item and as well as your input on that. So I think then as a challenge, what we can do is just challenge ourselves. First off, Bilal talked about when we're putting out when we're sharing our expertise or our ideas and all of that, there's different ways that we can do that. So it's up to you how you think is the best way of, of building that. But as a challenge, what we can do is we can dedicate or challenge ourselves for the next 30 days to be putting out that content. Uh, Bilal, I don't know if you have any um, tips because you did mention uh, different formats of content or different ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, at the end, yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's really up to you what you feel strong in. Like multimedia has been my strong suit because that's what I've done for the last, you know, 15 years. Um, so, so every now and then, if I find that I'm slacking in a particular area, just to infuse myself uh, with that excitement and passion, I give myself a challenge, 30-day challenge, every day for the next 30 days, uh, produce content, right? Now, I'm not talking about producing content. If you can, you want to add that in there for the next 30 days, produce content and reach out to uh, folks to contribute content to, then go for it. But I would say, uh, uh, the, here's the thing, right? people are scared, but also inclined to connect with folks. Right? I think the, scared, the, the, the fear comes from the thought of being rejected. And that's fine. In fact, for every, you know, in a, in a reality scenario, every 20 people that you reach out to connect with, 19 of them will either say no or they just won't respond. And that's fine. But you'll get one out of those 20. And if you're connecting with like 100 people every week over the course of the next four weeks, then you might have 5, 10, 15, 20, uh, 20 new uh, attention platforms that you have, you know, pollinated, so to speak. 
Awesome. Sounds good. So uh, I think that's a great, a great action item for us to leave off with. That can include creating that ourselves or reaching out to others and contributing to it. Maher just pointed out to me uh, something interesting. And he mentioned that, you know, most of the Qabilas right now that are on this call have a seminar coming out. So what would be a pretty interesting way for us to start getting the ball rolling is we can actually put this challenge and put it towards your class. So every single day, how can you either reach out and contribute to a platform that uh, you can provide value to? Or how can you create content or put something out there that's going to be consistent for the next 30 days? And you don't need to overcomplicate it, by the way. Because one of the things, um, I talk to a lot of different people who tell me that, oh, you know, I want to start vlogging or I want to start blogging or start doing this or that. And they overcomplicate the process for themselves. For example, they say, I need to go and buy this fancy camera or I need to do this. And that's why I can't do it. But if you simplify the process, then you can make it a lot easier for yourself and Bilal, i think you can give us some tips on that if you want to share dude when it comes to vlogging you've got your cell phone that's all you need i made uh in 2017 i made 150 videos all from my cell phone i had not uh, over 150 videos none of that footage touched my computer before it went on youtube so is it doable yeah there's tools out there you can use um you could just create a video and just Upload it directly to YouTube. That's option one. That's the most beginner, most basic, most simplest way to do it. If you want to make it a little bit fancy, you can download Quick, Q-U-I-K. It's an app from GoPro. Literally throw all the footage in there, play around with it. There's a little bit of a learning curve, but you can figure it out in a couple of, uh, couple of tries. Uh, and boom. Now, if you want to edit your videos a little bit, you can use Adobe Clip, right? Bring your footage in there. Uh, but then, you know, with each one of these apps, it has its ups and downs. But I'm saying if you want to get started, like, forget about editing. Just open up that video app, press record, and start sharing. And then upload it to YouTube, and you're good. Do 30 videos like that. You'll discover your flow. You'll also see what's engaging, what's not engaging. Um, and, uh, and then from there, you'll be able to uh, move, uh, you know, further develop it and improve and uh, better your skills. Perfect. All right. So I'm just going to, this is the last question now, and then we're going to wrap up after this, inshallah. But I'm just going to pull up, because there was a question earlier that wasn't as relevant to our discussion, but maybe you can just share it with us a bit. Um, someone had asked what faith essentials were. They were, they were, they were hearing about it. Uh, maybe you can just give us a quick intro into what it is and what to expect and, and when we can ask. Sure. Um, okay. Just to kind of uh, give you a background context, Al-Maghrib Institute is their brand and what they do best has been live on site a seminar experience, right? And so whether it was double weekend, single weekend, uh, a weeknight, it was always a live on-site experience. Now, part of the challenge was, uh, hey, you know, there's more than just Islamic sciences that we need to be able to engage with. So Al-Maghrib said, you know what, why don't we also put out a Quran learning platform um, that, but it be, have it be its own brand, have it be its own reputation, because we don't want to dilute the idea of what Al-Maghrib is. And so we launched Quran Revolution right, with Wissam Sharif, and it was the idea that Wissam already has a system of training, system of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of his own TAs and his own instructors and whatnot under the Quran Revolution brand, but it's supported by Al-Maghrib Institute in terms of his institution of advocating Quranic literacy, coupled with Al-Maghrib Institute, together brought Quran Revolution. That system that came about was in of itself a beta run, trial run, to see if we could do something similar for Islamic sciences. And so, but not so much in the sense of, hey, we're trying to uh, have people graduate with Islamic studies degrees. Like, no, one of the things that we realize with Al-Maghrib is that people need to learn the essentials of faith, at least have a place for them to go A to Z. And so we figured, okay, why don't we now take the success of what happened with Quran Revolution, apply the same exact system, but 
Again, in a new brand, call it Faith Essentials, featuring a lot of the instructors from the Maghrib Institute. And so that's what Faith Essentials has become. It's going to be its own brand. That's not, uh, and don't confuse it with some of the classes that Al Maghrib has online as well. Because what's happening here is some of the classes that are no longer taught but are needed as part of Al Maghrib's degree in certain classes. And these are also classes that, um, uh, because of Al Maghrib's live on site, uh, reach limitation. There are many other people across the world that can benefit from what Al Maghrib has to learn. And even just within the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and wherever else Al Maghrib happens to be, um, there are other cities nearby that can't get Al Maghrib classes, so they can take some of these seminars and, uh, and, and, and get credit for that. But that's still Al Maghrib because it's an Al Maghrib seminar that has now been digitized. Uh, and for an online experience, whereas Faith Essentials is its own standalone self-sustaining program where somebody comes in, probably take an assessment. After that, they would be placed in a particular area, and then they would go through the program until they complete what they need to complete, or they don't go through anything. They just look at what they want, and they go through, and, and then they have that, or it could be as a reference. But ultimately, that's what Faith Essentials is. It's basically an A to Z learning program uh, designed for the everyday Muslim. Wonderful. Thanks, man. Just want to say Jazakallah for everyone for joining us. That wraps up our discussion for today. What I do want to mention for everybody, we actually have the recordings going live after every single session. It goes up on our podcast, which you can access through iTunes or any other podcast app. Just search Al-Maghrib, Crew You, Crew You is one word together, and you can subscribe to the podcast. I know a lot of your teammates were not able to join the call, but if you benefited today, then I would strongly recommend that you urge them to listen to it and to catch up on earlier episodes. Also, if you didn't get a chance to join us in the past, then you should catch up on those episodes too because we try our best to provide as much value as possible so that you can take things away that are practical and that you can start growing and, and benefiting from, inshallah. So our next session, every Crew You episode is scheduled for the last Tuesday of the month live. The time of the day changes from episode to episode because we have Qabilas all over the world in different time zones. So we try to switch it around to accommodate the different Qabilas. So our next episode will be on March 27th. You can put the date down. Just remember it's the last Tuesday of the month. We will be announcing who the guest speaker is as well as the topic and the time very soon. So keep an eye out. Every time that we have it announced, I send an announcement out to all of the emirs and the emiras. So if you don't hear about it, just follow up with your local emir and emira and they'll give you the details to make sure you can come to the call. Every month you can access it at almaghrib.org slash crewyou and make sure to subscribe to the podcast that I mentioned. All right, everyone. Jazakallah khair. See you on the next session. Wassalamu alaikum.